All right, how's everybody doing today? Hotep. Hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. It is Sunday, September 1st, 2019, and usually you see me on at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the studios at 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation, WFDF in Detroit. But this is Labor Day weekend. They're closed, so you're not watching me there. You're watching me here. But I'm joined with this sister here. You've seen her before on the African History Network. She's very beautiful. She's very intelligent. The one and only Jice Johnson of uh, BBI Professionals. How you doing today, Jice? I'm good. How are you? All right. All right. Well, look, it's good to uh, uh, see you again. Uh, we were just, was it last weekend? We were on the uh, Black Agenda Tour. Okay. What, what were we, Brooklyn? Okay. All my days are running together. So... <laughs> I don't remember one weekend to the next because <laughs> the weekend before that I was somewhere and before that I was in Atlanta or something. I, all my days are running together. But you have the Black Boss Summit, the Black Boss Summit. And this year uh, you all are focusing on and celebrating black excellence. It's taking place. Yeah, it's taking place Friday, September seventh, two thousand nineteen, in Denver, Colorado. So tell us about this because you have a uh, a powerful lineup of presenters and speakers as well. Tell us about what's what, what's taking place. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the Black Boss Summit. Uh, we started this a couple of years ago, and uh, so this year is our third year. Mm -hmm. And and um, what we wanted to do was have a business summit. Um, where it wasn't focused in necessarily on recognition or awards. It wasn't focused in on fundraising, but really a full day to really dig into black entrepreneurship and right. um, help our entrepreneurs, you know, with some tangible takeaways that they can really apply to their business. And that's what we do at the Black Business Initiative in general uh, is, you know, really work with our entrepreneurs in order to create a sound economic base. So this year is our third year and every year we've uh, strived to do bigger and better and so, yeah, we do have a, we have a powerful lineup. Mm -hmm. um, did you want me to go through the lineup? Or sure, sure. You can go through. You, uh, we see it's hosted by Shay J. So we were familiar with Shay J as well. But go through the lineup and, and you're going to be presenting as well. You are not just an entrepreneur. You are a mompreneur, which I takes a whole level. So you need extra hands to juggle all the things that you have to do. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, so yes, I am a mompreneur. That is a real part of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm just going to talk a little bit about black excellence. Um, that's really what I'm bringing to the table because we have some really powerful entrepreneurs and I really am excited to let them shine and, um, allow for, um, an audience who by and large hears from me enough, I think, uh, for them to have an opportunity to hear from some other really dope experts that are in our community and, um, to know that this type of expertise exists inside of our community. Right. So, um, we have Delroy Gill, who is currently with Liv Sotheby's. Uh, he is a real estate agent, and Delroy Gill uh, comes from London and um, has lived here for, I think, about 20 years or so. But um, he has built a phenomenal brand around luxury and uh, and has even brought that down to kind of the, the everyday person through an organization that he has called the Denver Gents. And so um, not only... Denver have, what? The Denver Gents. Okay, G-E-N-T-S, short for gentlemen, the Denver Gents, okay. Yes, and that, that uh, you know, that brand overall has really um, catered to, it's like a gentleman's club. I think it's, you know, well, I guess let me yeah, rephrase that. <laughs> everything they have going on in there because I am not a man, but... Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, to what I, from what I understand, he is really, you know, wanted to bring back like a gentleman's club, but kind of bring it back at the level of, um, 
you know, an everyday kind of level and highlight, uh, you know, men who like to dress well, uh, men who want to present themselves well and, you know, have a certain brand that they want to present to the world. So, um, okay. cause when you say gentlemen's club, you got to like really define that. Cause that can mean something else. That's why. That's why. They're philanthropic in nature. What'd you <laughs> right. say? They're philanthropic in nature. Um, okay. so they, you know, but they have done uh, quite a few events that are like some fundraising events and they've partnered up with some youth organizations and things of that sort. So, um, but it's, it's geared around men who want to, you know, brand themselves. It's around personal branding. Okay. And so um, that's something that he will be bringing to the table. Um, we have Dr. Venetia Dutra, who uh, is phenomenal um i i don't i don't even know where to start with dr venetia dutra but she is a tenure professor out here uh in denver but she is a finance major mm -hmm. uh, and she also has brown equity properties so she is running a uh pla a platform like a crowdfunding uh platform if you want to get into real estate invest investment and her um group are doing real estate out in houston Okay. I think predominantly. And so uh, she will be okay. out in Houston, absolutely. Um, we have uh, Dr. Ryan Ross, who uh, runs uh, the Urban Leadership Foundation, who is, uh, is a leadership organization that is here in Denver, Colorado, exposing Black uh career-minded and entrepreneurs to a wide range of networks and really opening up their uh, their ability to be leaders and present as leaders in our community. Um, and then we have Tia Jones, and she is actually coming back to Denver from LA, where she's built um, a successful real estate business out there. And so uh, they'll be talking about a lot of things dealing with how to build an excellent business, how you build um, value and create systems in your business and, you know, create a brand that your customer can really um, grow to depend on and grow to love. Okay. And then you have um, uh, Karen Civil as well, right? Absolutely. All right. Tell us about Karen. People need to be telling me about Karen. Um, Karen Civil is a phenomenal young woman, um, and so I think you know she she's known for a lot. So I don't even want to say what I think she's most known for, mm -hmm. but uh, she was a business partner with Nipsey Hussle. She had been on Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, she is a uh, a brand ambassador for. Um, Puma, and I think she has CoverGirl. I mean, she's got a lot going on. She also does a show on Complex, and it's like the black version of a Shark Tank on Complex. Okay. Um, doing a lot of things, a lot of really great things. And um, she has certainly uh, made a name for herself, and she is going to really bring it. All right, excellent, excellent. Well, this is taking place um, September 7th, Saturday, September 7th. 2019, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, at the CU uh, at the uh, in Denver. Okay, uh, 10035 South Peoria Street, Lone Tree, Colorado, and this is in South Denver. All right. Now, how can people get more information? How can people get tickets? They can go to uh, BlackBossSummit.com. That would be the best way to get some tickets. Okay, BlackBossSummit.com is B-O-S-S. -S 
S-U-M-M-I-T. All right. So if we look at the, uh, if we look at the website here, because I, I looked at the, uh, on your point, Eventbrite, okay, um, you, you have the information, uh, BBI and it's on Eventbrite. Um, Boss Wild Black, Boss Wild Black, the Black Boss Summit is back for year three. Join us for a lineup of powerful and impactful speakers empowering you with the tools you need to succeed. So the Black Ball Summit is an immersive and invaluable experience taking place in an action-packed day in the Mile High City of uh, Denver, Colorado. The day will be made up of engaging presentations from movers and shakers highlighting what Black excellence in business looks like. In addition to our lineup of amazing entrepreneurs, this year's panel of bossed-up professionals is sure to leave you uh, with takeaways you can apply to growing Black business. This year's summit is a crash course in creating excellence in your business. Topics include developing your brand experience, creating excellent customer service strategies, building systems to scale, and bringing value to your customer. All right. So when we look at the concept of black excellence, black excellence, we, we, we hear that term often. We see award shows, right? African American award shows, BET. You know, um, the BET awards happen June 23rd. 2019. Now I recorded it. And since I'm so busy, I just watched it like in the last two days. Okay. Because <laughs> I've been so busy. I haven't had the time. It was, I, I, I recorded that and the post show wrap up and they talked about black excellence there. We watched mm -hmm. other uh, African-American award shows. They talk about black excellence. When you talk about, and we see on the flyer here, we see black excellence is prominent on the flyer. How does black excellence relate to this summit and how does it relate to African-American businesses? So one of the things that I talk about um, often is that we've all, we are all unfortunately familiar with the phrase that we have to be twice as good and we get half as much. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, sometimes I struggle to figure out if this is propaganda or if this is just a lowering of the value system inside of our communities. But there is, you know, uh, there is a, a, what seems to be at least a narrative that states that, you know, black businesses are, um, they're, they don't operate or perform in excellence, right? So you talk about, I don't go to black restaurants because they always out of something on the menu or I don't I shop. is out of chicken. It's not black owned, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> They're out of chicken sandwiches. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think that's important to note because we do often, uh, we give passes inside of the white community when they don't operate to a standard of excellence, but inside of our own community, we do not give those same passes. And so at any point in time, if there is a black business that operates at anything less than the best, I mean, we just go in on them. Right. And, um, and we're very quick to, you know, publicize our, our displeasure with them. And this is why I don't shop black. This is why I don't buy black. This is why I don't do business with black people. And so when we have to take control of our own narrative. Right. Oh, you're sharing the screen. I was like, what just happened here? Yeah, sharing the screen, sharing the oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> I was saying, uh, you know, we have to really uh, take control of our own narrative. And, and so that starts with us redefining or defining for ourselves what Black excellence really is. And so, you know, in my mind, um, that means that you are creating an experience for your customer uh, in business, at least you're creating an experience for your customer uh, that 
your customer um, can enjoy, that they think about, that they will want to come back to, that they would want to recommend. And we have to uh, not necessarily change the narrative for people on the outside of our communities. Like sometimes first we have to change the narrative for ourselves. Right. And can think through all the systemic reasons as to why our businesses are the way they are and things of that sort. And, and I never, ever, ever, ever want to discount systemic issues that our communities face. Sure. And after we acknowledge that those systemic, systemic issues are there and we begin to fight, you know, for that, we also have to acknowledge where our own shortcomings are, right? And so if you are a business that is inconsistent, if you are a business that um, is constantly out of something, if you are a business where your customer service lags or, you know, you're a business where you struggle in some area, um, and in particular, that front-facing area, like how your customers view you, then this is an opportunity for you to dig in deeper with some people who have created excellent businesses and people who have created that standard that I think we can look up to and, and strive for, and they can tell you how to do it. And so that, that theme really ties into the idea that we have to change our narrative mm -hmm. um, to uh, match the way that we that we know what really what I, I guess what I'm saying is that we have to be able to change the narrative to match what we know who we are. Okay. All right. And, 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 and when we talk about black excellence, that's also uh, setting a standard that we have to rise to as well. When we talk about black excellence and we, and we celebrate black excellence. Um, and so the, it's called the black boss summit, the black boss summit. So I, I, I remember Beyonce, had a song talking about being a boss. Uh, we hear that um, uh, we, we see that uh, term used a lot when it comes to uh, entrepreneurship, when it comes to African-American, especially African-American women. Okay. Um, so how, how, how did you come up with the term black boss summit? And what does that term really uh, summarize? What does that term really symbolize black boss summit? Well, I think inside of our community, we, you know, we, we are at a tipping point where we have been torn down for so much and for so long. And um, really, truly, oftentimes our esteem is just in the, in the shits, right? I mean, maybe some people don't really want to acknowledge that, but, you know, even as, um, uh, you know, if you had, if you had attended the black agenda, right. Even David Banner said like black people don't even want to be black. Right. There is a stigma that comes with it. There some is, right. <laughs> some of us. Right. right. Uh, and, and so there is this, you know, there's a place where, um, there's a place where we have to begin to reaffirm who we are. And there's something about saying I'm a boss. And really meaning that and striving towards that. Even if you don't feel like today, like your business is just you and, and you know, you, you don't think of yourself as a boss, right? Because maybe you don't have any employees or maybe you don't have anybody who you're the boss of, right? But right. you can be the boss of your own narrative and you can be the boss of your own story. And so, you know, the, the, first of all, it is a summit. So it, it's a full day. Uh, we have breakfast, lunch, reception, uh, okay. you know, we have a market in there so you can come and shop and, you know, so it, it's a we have vendors. We have vendors, yeah. uh, and, and we provide the food, right? So you can come in there, you can get fully fed, you can, you know, come in and get educated and, and you can, uh, you know, shop for shop and get resources. So summit, you know, that's what it is, okay. but 
I, I put the emphasis and the highlight on being a black boss because I think that we need to recognize, like, first of all, that's who this is targeting. That's who this is for. Um, it is for those who are recognizing or want to recognize or want to become a boss, um, you know, and that's of your life, of your narrative, of your business, in your community. I mean, there's a, a wide range of where you can be that boss and recognizing that power in you. So it's really an, an empowering term, right? And so when we think about what does a boss do, you think about a boss takes ownership, they take responsibility, they're accountable. Uh, you know, you think about the, um, you know, that they're out here making money, right? They're building legacy, they're, they have ownership. I mean, there's a lot that becomes attached to the terminology or the idea of being a boss. And so right. this is for those people who are saying, I'm a boss. And you don't have to just live in Denver. So you can come from out of state, you can come on in. Um, we do have, you know, hotel accommodations. There's a Marriott that is like five minutes away from, from our location or from the venue. And so even if you're from out of town, you can certainly come in um, and, you know, get the same experience. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. And so this is targeted to people who are either existing entrepreneurs or they may want to start a business and they want to get tips uh, and get expertise on starting the business and navigating throughout this whole life as a uh, entrepreneur. Okay. So that's basically who this is geared to African-Americans who fit into those categories, basically. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And, and, you know, so a lot of people see me, see presentations. I do see lectures. I do, you know, I'm on the black agenda tour as well. And uh, they, they hear me talk about history. And a lot of people are surprised to find out my degree is not, a, not in history. It's in business administration with a major in marketing. So I graduated uh, over 20 years ago, but I taught entrepreneurship for seven years as well. And there's a, uh, I think there's largely a misconception about entrepreneurship. And I've also studied successful African-American entrepreneurs, historical figures, whether it's Madam C.J. Walker, her mentor, Annie Turnbull Malone, John H. Johnson, uh, who created Johnson Publishing, Ebony and Jet, things like this. There's a, there's a misconception largely I see in the African-American community about entrepreneurship because uh give you a perfect example when michael Basin had his first radio show before he was locked out of the studios and his show was taken off the air he used to do a segment called um live your dreams right mm -hmm. and it, it was like every week or every other week live, live your dreams and i remember him talking about quitting your job and starting a business and i remember people <laughs> calling in talking about they want to quit their job and start a business, right? There's this total misconception, right? That being an entrepreneur is going to be easier than working at a nine to five job. And, and what people, people don't understand, you're already laughing. What people don't understand is like, dude, this is not glamorous. You see people after they've like made it, you know, you don't see that struggle that they had to go through to get to that point. Um, you know, so about 51% of all new businesses don't make a profit to their third year in business. Mm -hmm. But about 80% of African-American-owned businesses go out of business in the first two years, okay? And what I, what I tell my students is, and what I've told them consistently is, do not quit your day job. <laughs> do not quit your day job because, right. see, entrepreneurship, and see, when I teach entrepreneurship, I teach it specifically from an African-American perspective, Absolutely. understanding our history. And see, the reason why I make a distinction is because at Wayne State's business school, most of my business professors were white. Right. So we learned white business principles from white people. And then I took 
entrepreneurship classes within the business school as well. Mm -hmm. And most of the entrepreneurship classes taught entrepreneurship from a white perspective. Right. Totally leaving out African-American uh, experiences, totally leaving out the fact that many of our people hate ourselves, totally leaving out the fact that we're mm -hmm. undercapitalized, all these things. So a lot, of, a lot of the books on entrepreneurship don't work for us. <laughs> you know, so, so people have to understand this. So talk about that with that struggle being an African-American entrepreneur. It, within the context mm -hmm. of, of people who largely been taught to hate themselves, right? And, and having to do this undercapitalized and still working a nine to five job, especially when we look at African-American women who make 61 cents on every dollar that the average white male makes. That's a whole nother dynamic that There's comes to entrepreneurship. Women. Yeah, black women's equal payday. That just happened uh, August, I think it was 23rd, 22nd. It takes the average black woman 20 months to make the same amount of money it takes the average white man to make in 12 months. That's a whole nother dynamic that comes to entrepreneurship. Go ahead. No, I mean, so everything that you're saying is absolutely, uh, is absolutely accurate. And that is, you know, a lot of the premise of having an organization called the black business initiative. I mean, it is about black business and, um, and so, you know, it, it's about recognizing the unique struggles that black entrepreneurs face. And there are a lot of them and they are definitely unique in many senses. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that same sentiment. You know, one of the funniest questions that I get asked is about work-life balance, right? So someone will go into business and then they're like, how do I balance? And um, and literally, like, I, I, I had this one post and, you know, I, I try to watch my language on your show, but I'm like, you know, F balance, right? Like, it does exist. And, and I can always tell the people who are not going to make it when right. you start about those balance questions because there just isn't. I mean, I'll give you my example. Last night, I went to bed about 1130, which was actually kind of early for me. Mm -hmm. uh, woke up about 430 this morning. I was working from about 430 until about seven, where I got pretty sleepy again and I was falling asleep at my computer. So I went and laid back down for about 90 minutes. And, you know, I got back up and I'm working all over again. And, uh, you know, and I've been at work pretty much all day and I've got my kids running around and, you know, I pretty much took a, a quick break to go in and make sure that everyone was fed. And then, you know, I'm back to work again. Right. And it's, it's, right. Sunday, it's a holiday weekend. It's like, none of that really matters. Um, not when you are in the process and in the phase of building. And that's something that a lot of people really just don't get because, you know, barbecues and rest days and, you know, you know, I want to go out and hang out with the fellas or I want to go out with Labor Day. Right. I'll be laboring on Labor Day. <laughs> exactly. And and it's not that you don't ever get to a place where you can make that, right? But if right. you understand the chips and the deck that's stacked against you, then what you understand is is that is that you have to work through a lot of that for long enough until you make it over. It's like you have to earn that time mm -hmm. to have balance. That doesn't just come off the rip. And so and, and if you expect that then I, you, you know, I very clearly tell people like, please expect to fail. And I don't say that as though like I'm trying to curse you or put something on you or speak anything negative over your business. I'm saying that you don't see people who are largely successful um, who have that type of mentality. 
Right. So you you can, you know, you can be successful in your own rights. If you want to build a small mom and pop shop, maybe you want to just not have to go to work, you know, for someone else. And, you know, you want to just have something that's there. But if you want to build legacy or you want to build something you can pass down to the next generation, it does take a lot more effort. It, it you know, it, it, it is those long work days. I mean, I, you know, can li- I will literally get up. I will break do some homeschooling with my kids and then come right back to uh, building this business. And I've been at it for five years. And so, you know, when, when I start to see the things that I'm seeing now, which are the contracts coming in and, you know, I start phone calls where before I'm making all the calls, Hey, 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 you know, now I'm getting the calls. Right. Right. And then, are saying, oh, well, that happened like overnight. She came out of nowhere. Like, no, I've been busting my ass like this for five years. And quite honestly, five years is short. Right. And so I would say, um, you know, definitely like have a plan. You have to have a plan before you just come off your job. Like that's not, that's not typically the way to go now, but it is, it is really working your plan because sometimes people will allow themselves to uh, be very complacent because they're relying on that check and worked all day long to build someone else's dream. You come home and you're tired, right? And you're not always willing to push through that tiredness in order for you to start building your own dream. So that job can definitely be a crutch. But I think when you have a solid plan, you give yourself a certain amount of time, you give yourself a certain amount of savings that you need to reach. Uh, You build what you can and and you finance what you can from your job Mm -hmm. to your business. Uh, you know, in, in that bootstrapping manner, um, you know, make that transition. Right. You know, and, and when we look at entrepreneurship for African-Americans, I, I see, I break this up into two main categories. There's subcategories, but two main categories. And first, let me say this on the outset. Every black person is not cut out to be an entrepreneur. Okay. Uh, I'm just telling you. But I do somebody, believe that everyone should have a business. Now, you know? Everyone should not be an entrepreneur, but everyone should have a business. Yes. And so even if you are invested in someone else's business, you mm-hmm. can be a silent partner. You can make right. an investment. You right. know, you can do something like own property where you, know, you don't have to do, you know, something that's a little bit more passive. Everyone should own a business because of the country that we live in and the type of economic system that we are in. Mm-hmm. You should own a business. But everyone is certainly not cut out to be an entrepreneur. Right, right. Owning a business is different than being an entrepreneur. And, you know, when, when you're an entrepreneur, see, look, when you have a, when you work for a corporation, you have a CEO, okay, chief executive officer. When you're an entrepreneur, you're the CEO. Oh, the chief everything officer. Everything operates based upon you. Every the, the buck stops with you, right? So people can be a silent partner. They can be invested in the business. They, everybody's not cut out to be dealing face-to-face with customers, handling the day-to-day business, okay, navigating through this because this is some gut-riching stuff, all right, seriously. And, 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 and the reason why I tell people don't quit your day job is because you're going to need steady income. You're going to need steady income to sustain yourself Especially if you have children, it's a whole nother level. You know, when I started my business, I ain't have kids. You know, I have one daughter now, but when I started the African History Network, I ain't have children. All right. And, and, and I was working. It is entirely different when you have children and you got to pay for health care and you got to pay for college and a mortgage, all this other stuff. Right. But two main categories. Um, uh, but, but, but you need steady income to sustain yourself and you're going to need steady income to invest in the business. And we have to look at the business as being a child. You don't send a one-year-old child out into the world to get a job to bring money into the, in, into the house, okay? Oftentimes, these businesses that we start up are not equipped to be able to afford us as an employee, meaning 
that they're not generating enough money so we can draw a salary early on. So we can quit our job and have something equivalent or even half of what we're making. It, it takes years for a business to get to that level. But, well, and, but let me go, let me, let me jump in there real quick because the other side about that is that is one of the struggles of black entrepreneurship, right? I mean, a lot of time people are there, you know, people start businesses for a, a variety of different reasons, right? But some sure. of them are lack of employment, right? Or underemployment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the ideal situation would be that you have uh, a job and, you know, a steady paycheck and a steady salary for you to draw on while you are building your business. And if you have a passion and if you, you know, are looking to start a business or have started a business and that is your situation, um, you know, you are in a blessed and a fortunate situation. And so definitely, you know, like I said, go back and make a plan, give yourself a cutoff date, you know, give yourself a savings amount so that you can get moving make sure that you're growing your clientele pretty steadily, you know, but the other side of that is that, that that's not everyone's situation. And that's um, that we don't always have that ability to have that steady, uh, you know, check coming in while we're building our business. And another area that I feel like black folks that we really struggle with because uh, we are all about the show. Mm-hmm. We want to show everyone everything that we have. We're all, we're trying to get out there and make sure people know we got some money. You right. know, it's about the Jordans and the red bottoms and the, you know, and, and the big <laughs> and, you know, all of these things, right? Popping and, bottles with models in the club. Yep. And, and, and it's funny to me, like, really, because statistically, like, we already know that that's not the case. So, like, when I'm watching a room full of people who are out here trying to, you know, uh, front in front of everybody, and I'm thinking, like, you are really digging yourself into a hole because you want people to think and believe that you're in a position that you're not. Mm-hmm. Um and, and when I make suggestions, right, it's like, it's almost funny because you can see the people who just like, they just gloss over, like, she's not talking to me, but I am. And I think about the, the I, I don't quote, don't quote me specifically because I really don't uh, have a lot of the Bible memorized, but you know that one, <laughs> the Bible verse where he's talking about, you know, that. I bet you know more than Donald Trump, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that part. The part where he's talking about, you know, like a, a, you can, you would sooner get a camel to fit through the eye of a needle before you would get, you know, rich people to give away their wealth, right? Rich man in um, heaven, yeah. Yeah, so, so it, it's just, it's, it's an interesting, you know, phenomenon to me that when I talk about things like minimalism or cutting back on things, uh, or when I talk about things like, um, you know, room sharing, right? Get a roommate, um, cut your cable off. You know, I, I, I present these ideas out here. Like there are some things that you need to do. And I'm not a person who believes in lack. So it's not like you have to walk around and live in a space of lack. One of the first things that I remember pe- people telling me is like, oh, well, don't, you know, don't get, don't get your coffee every day. Well, listen, I like espresso. My coffee machine at home don't make it. I'm going to drink my espresso. I don't feel bad that I got my coffee. Is that an expense I could cut out? Absolutely. But it's not one I'm willing to cut out. So we do have to think about what we're willing to do and not willing to do, right? But right. think about it in a, in a term that's reasonable. Like, I promise you that my bills will get paid before I got my espresso. But if I am able to, you know, sustain my coffee habit, like, that's, you know, that's what it is. So it's never really about living in a place of lack, but it is about thinking where you can cut back while you are in that growth process. So there was a long time that I did not get my nails done. There was a long time I did not get my hair done. That was a trade-off for me. I'd rather have my coffee um, than get my nails done, right? And right. so I just kept So you my- cut back in certain areas. 
you cut back right. on certain areas, right? And, you, and people, you're like, I don't profess to tell people where to make those choices, but but if you're not cutting back anywhere, you know, and you're out constantly trying to live this lavish lifestyle that you really truly can't afford, and you want to promote like I'm a boss, but you're not right. really in the boss lifestyle yet. Like, remember, being a boss is so much more than the the you know external um, appearance of being a boss. Yeah. A boss is a mindset, and if right. you're that tells you that you have to prove something to someone else versus proving it to yourself and your family and building your legacy, then you already don't have a boss mindset. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, uh, one of the things I do is um, I encourage people to invest in themselves. When I, when I teach entrepreneurship, I encourage people to invest in themselves, invest in, in, in summit seminars like yours, the Black Ball Summit coming up set, uh, uh, Saturday, September 7th, 2019 in uh, Colorado at 10035 South Peoria Street, Lone Tree, Colorado. Visit blackballsummit.com, blackballsummit.com for more information to purchase your tickets. People are coming from all over the country. Another thing I, I encourage people to do, one of the things I did, was is I invested in books on tape mm -hmm. and I studied successful people. I read autobiographies of successful people, everybody from Jack Welch, uh, who is the former CEO, CEO of General Electric to Southern Redstone, uh, of, uh, who was the CEO of Viacom to uh, Rick Pitino, uh, the, the NCAA coach to um, uh, Pat Riley, a uh, longtime coach of the uh, LA Lakers to mm -hmm. Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, things like this. In, in addition to reading business books, uh, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, uh, Tom Hopkins, uh, all, all the gurus when it comes to sales, because I have a, a long background in sales as well. I read those. I also read Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. So I know Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. That's this one is, of my favorite books. This is his latest book, The Wealth right Choice. Here. The Wealth Choice, right here. And see. I wish I had that over near me. When I tell you that book is marked, that, I don't know where I put that book. That book is yeah. marked. Oh, or I, was, I thought it might have been down here. Well, that book is marked all up. <laughs> yeah, well, I talked to him while he was writing the book. It took him seven okay. years to write this book, all right? I talked to him when he was writing this book, so I knew it was coming out. But if you don't have this book here, The Wealth Choice, The Wealth Choice, Success Secrets of Black Millionaires, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, and his first book was Think and Grow Rich, A Black Choice, mm -hmm. which was like an African-American version of Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And he was commissioned by the Napoleon Hill Foundation to write that version of Think and Grow Rich. But this book right here, he interviewed 1,000 uh, African-American uh, millionaires, okay? Mm -hmm. And he did surveys with them, things like this, to find out common traits that they have and find out how they think. And uh, I encourage people to read this book, but also read The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas J. Stanley. Mm -hmm. so that came out maybe about 20 years ago, The Millionaire Next Door. And the whole, the whole, our whole concept of who millionaires are, what their spending habits are, things like this, is totally contrary to regular millionaires, to actual millionaires. Most of them are not flashy. Most of them did not make the money in entertainment. You know, they live well below their means. They don't have major, uh, they don't have a bunch of credit cards, things like this. So when you actually get past the facade, yes. and you get to the actual truth of it, it's, yes. it's totally different than what people think. And then also very quickly studying great people, what makes the great great? This is by Dr. Dennis Kimball also. He's a uh, business I, professor I at Clark Atlanta. What makes the great greats? Go, uh, what makes the great great? Go ahead, uh, Jace. 
No, I was saying I have to pick that one up. I didn't. I I have not read that one by him, but absolutely, that Wealth Choice book is phenomenal. Um, and when I tell you, it is marked up, it is highlighted, it is pages bent and and notes sticking out because that mindset piece is so crucial. And that was really um, a lot of that was what led me to actually move away from directly like business coaching to mindset and productivity coaching because. Mm. Um, what happens is that we we're not thinking we're not thinking the right way right and and right. and a lot of it is propaganda and that's one of the things that i am beginning to study more and more matter of fact looking speaking of books so this is one that i'm reading right now is the age of propaganda right. because we have to understand why we are so that book um this is by anthony i don't know pratt pratt Kinney's and uh elliot aronson okay so it's dealing with understanding the propaganda of media. Nice. Um, yeah. So there. I don't know if they, does that show. Is it showing up backwards or frontwards? I can't tell. Yeah, it's showing. It's showing. We got it. The art. Of the the everyday propaganda. Put it back up. The everyday. What is it? The everyday use and abuse of persuasion. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we have to understand that, it's, it, that what's happening is, or what has happened already, is that we have been sold a lifestyle that keeps us in a perpetual state of consumerism. Mm -hmm. And that lifestyle is, um, is like, it's detrimental to our ability to build wealth. Right. Uh, we are working on living a dream for, that white Americans cannot even uphold or obtain. And right. so, you know, it, it's not even just that um, that the average, you know, black millionaire is not doing these certain things because black millionaires are also subjected to some of that, that propaganda as well. You know, black millionaires are more likely to buy a Mercedes Benz than white millionaires are. Right. And so, uh, and, but they definitely are not this anywhere close to the facade of the entertainment industry right. as they sell entrepreneurship to us. The right. entrepreneurship is filled with all the Mercedes and the Benz and the Ferraris and the mansions and the, and the parties, the alcohol. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is, it, you know, I, I, I know very, very few people uh, who live that way who are, that are highly successful. Right. And, you know, it's not that they don't enjoy life, but it's about, the, I, I think life begins to take on a different meaning when you get past a certain level of income and you get past a certain level of comfortability and you kind of wake up one day and realize like, I'm not living in the hood anymore. I'm not in slums anymore. I'm not in the ghetto. Like it, it, it becomes a different, like, you know, life kind of takes on this different meaning for you. But one of the things that I do, uh, that I, that I struggle with, and this is why, you know, the black business initiative is, is, is built on certain pillars. And one of those pillars is mentorship. Mm -hmm. because We have to, you know, we have to tell the rest of our community those things. If right. you are a black millionaire or you are a black entrepreneur who is highly successful and you are a part of selling this propagandized version of what it looks like to be a millionaire, you are doing a disservice to our community mm -hmm. because we're striving to look like and be like you at a, at a rate in a place where we can't afford it. Uh, and we're not getting the right mentorship to guide us in our financial decisions, in our entrepreneurial decisions, uh, in making the right networks and connections that we need in order to be successful. So it's important for our, our black entrepreneurs and our black that are successful and our black uh, millionaires to really think about how to properly mentor our community to a place that they can hold the right values and that is, uh, you know, healthy. Exactly. Exactly. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, 
Well, talk about, you just mentioned BBI professionals. Talk about that because that's your business, BBI professionals. Mm-hmm. Let people know about that and what, what exactly do you all do with BBI professionals? So uh, BBI stands for Black Business Initiative, and um, really it was started five years ago with the idea that we needed to work on our business acumen, mentorship, uh, accessing capital, and we needed to learn how to circulate our dollars or patronize the Black community. Uh, Since then, we've added on um, the idea that policy is very important and very key to our success. Mm -hmm. Um, The 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 company initially started with a business boot camp. So I was working with entrepreneurs to teach them how to create a business plan. Um, since then, we've moved away from the like, you know, 40 page uh, business plan type of model more into really having a solid understanding of a business model. Uh, and so we really use the business model canvas kind of as the, the primary um, tool that we use to help entrepreneurs think through how to start their business. But we do business start, startup programming. We have a mentorship mastermind program, and then we have a um, scale program, which, which is called Black Capital. Uh, and that is for entrepreneurs who are looking to access capital. And uh, so that, that's, that's the crux overall right now. What we do is we provide that programming. Uh, we have, uh, you know, other pieces here and there, but I would say that's, that's the meat of what the Black Business Initiative is. And, and what is that? What is that website for BBI professionals? It is bbiprofessional.com. bbiprofessional.com. No S at the end. bbiprofessional.com. bbiprofessional.com. Okay, excellent. Well, um, those just tuning in, we're speaking with Jice Johnson, um, who's the uh, founder and organizer of the Black Boss Summit 2019. And they are focusing on Black excellence. It's taking place Saturday, September 7th, 2019 in Colorado. You should be there. People are coming from all over the country. You should definitely be there as well. As we wrap up here on uh, Facebook, Dana, uh, who's this? Dana Reed said the commercial about the Black lady who puts the cake in the corporate break room stating I quit is somewhat misleading. So this is, I think this, I think that's Crest is one of the toothpaste commercials. Right. And she walks into the uh, uh, office that she walks into the office and she says uh, uh, cake in the uh, meeting room or something like that. And she puts a cake there and it says I quit. And then it shows her uh, Corey's cakes. That's the name of her business. It shows her with her business and, you know, things like this. Right. So, um, they, you know, here, here's here's one thing I tell my students. Right. They make entrepreneurship seem so easy on TV. Right. Okay, they make it seem so easy on TV. And one of the things that we really need to focus on, I I tell people to watch two programs. Watch uh, the Shark Tank, number one, on ABC. Watch the Shark Tank, because you can learn a lot about promoting your business, sales pitches, marketing, how to value your business, the valuation, et cetera. And then also watch The Profit on CNBC. So CNBC is NBC's business handler, The Profit, Marcus Lamontis. That is a hell of a show. And and the P-R-O-F-I-T and The Profit, he talks about the three Ps, the product, the uh, process, and the people, okay? Mm -hmm. And what he does is he's kind of like the Shark Tank, but he uh, invests in failing businesses. He goes in and totally turns the business around. And you can learn so much about entrepreneurship watching these two two shows but especially the profit because you get to see behind the scenes but one of the things i know is about the shark tank and uh if you've seen the shark tank you probably know this as well you'll have people m- most of the contestants are white on the shark tank and you'll have people their business has been in existence two three four five years 
They have all these fantastic ideas, right? And they've got a purchase order from Walmart. They've got a purchase order from Target, et cetera. Then you get deeper into it. You find out the owners are not taking the salary. You haven't, I mean, pay attention to this, right? So they've got purchase orders, $200,000, $300,000. They don't have enough capital to buy the raw materials to produce the products to actually fulfill these purchase orders. They have successful businesses. They may do a million in sales, two million in sales. But when you get down to it, you find out the owners are not taking a salary because they have to keep constantly reinvesting in the business. So when so these are white people, right? And, and if, you, if you understand the median household net worth of a white family is $171,000 a year, $171,000 compared to about, uh, I think, 11000 for African-American family. And, and so that really causes that should really cause us to whole, rethink this whole entrepreneurship thing it which goes back to my premise don't quit your day job <laughs> well and yeah i mean i you know one of the books i would recommend is profit first mm-hmm. um i think that's a, i think that's a phenomenal book that really uh encourages someone to think outside the box in terms of how to begin to create profit inside of their business and scale back right who wrote that um, book profit first some Jewish guy, Mike, my, okay. Mike, um, okay, my husband, I'll look it up. like that. Yeah. Profit first. Um, so I, I that's a book I would recommend, but the, uh, to, to, you know, go back off of that. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely, um, first of all, it's absolutely misleading, um, you know, to walk in there and be like, I quit. Right. And, and I think, like I said, you can work your way up there. But uh, one of the one of the spaces, and that's again where it kind of, kind of comes into play about what's different in Black entrepreneurship is, you know, needing to have that that uh, that access to capital for the cash flow, and um, and we see it so often in these small businesses, and that's why it's it's a I think it's really important for for entrepreneurs and people to start divesting in some of these large companies that really screw over your chances as a small company to be successful, right? And so, um, you know, you think about something like getting your stuff on the shelves in, in a Walmart or a Target is like, great. Well, one, you do have to produce, uh, you have to produce the, the product to get on the shelf, right? And so you got to have that up front. And even when they buy it back, you know, you look at things like these sales or these markoffs or these clearances. And what we don't know is that Walmart is not taking a hit on those dollars, right? So Walmart actually bills back the the manufacturer, that would be you, right? They bill you back uh, when your product doesn't sell. And so, you know, we have to really uh, have a stronger sense of understanding how the systems work because that's how you get yourself into a situation that, um, can really be detrimental. And so then sometimes you hear people talk about growing too fast and you think like, how could you really grow too fast? But you can. Yes, you can. You can can definitely grow too fast to where you're not able to take on uh, what's coming your way. And so I would really encourage people, uh, if you're looking at entrepreneurship, not only to start really putting aside some things and saving and growing your clientele and building out a solid brand name for yourself, but um, you know, also begin to think about putting your systems and processes in place. that is the way to scale, right? You scale and you leverage yourself through process and through systems. And one of the things that I see in black entrepreneurship, and this is myself as well, you know, I, I put out a, I think a fairly transparent post, you know, I said, I want to talk about black excellence because of my own struggles, right? Like I struggle 
putting putting systems in place. I there's a lot of things that I struggled. I bought property and didn't have any money to fix it up. Right? It's like you know, <laughs> they make it seem so easy on the commercials, right? right? You don't realize how much something is going to cost, right? And you don't realize even with sweat equity, you know what that's going to look like. So, right. <laughs> so I think it's um you know it's 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 a, a an interesting. Um, phenomenon. I'm sorry. I don't know if you can hear that knocking. That's one of my kids. All <laughs> right, you're a mom, a mompreneur. I understand that. No, it's, yeah. just um, it's just interesting when you talk about buying the property and not having the money to fix it up. Because see, when they have the commercials, you know, I'm, I live in Detroit, so I've been involved and buy a property before, right? It, it, they have the commercials, and they, you can buy a house for five hundred dollars, and right, but then you would, would need twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of worth of. <laughs> Right, and then and they don't talk to you about yeah, what you want bill. Exactly. Right, and they don't talk. That's actually that's a that's some real shit right there. Yep. I literally two months ago just finished paying off a two thousand dollar water bill that I didn't accumulate. Right, it came with the property, <laughs> uh, and uh, and it wasn't even so much that it came with the property. It actually came from the property uh, the uh, the previous owner, mm -hmm. not uh, basically the previous owner was like stealing water, but. Mm the you know and these are like lessons that you learn because the 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 title company didn't do their research right, right. So when I went to go and switch the water I'm like well my tenants already have water they're like we don't show any water run into that property I was like right <laughs> yep you understand what's going on guys right it's so easy <laughs> when they when they had a seminars you buy real estate you come you can get houses for five hundred dollars why are you still paying rent you can right. It, 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 see, people kill me when they say, okay, if you can rent an apartment, you can own a house. Wait a second, hold on. You got to add at least 40% more per month for utilities, okay? Then you got to add in property taxes. You got to add, it, add in more from doing it. It's just we have to be knowledgeable going in. And so, you know, in one of my podcasts, I was even sharing, like, I have literally always had roommates. I can think of two occasions that I did not have a roommate. Mm -hmm. And I've always been looked at funny for that. Like, I can't live with nobody. I'm like, well, that's why I'm continuing to build and you're not. Because right. expenses need to be shared. Right. <laughs> You know, but it, it, you know, for me, it's not been an issue, but again, that comes back to that mindset. You know, you listen to Les Brown and he talks about sleeping in his office. You listen to Tyler, Tyler Perry and he's saying, I took everything I had. I'm sleeping it like Tyler Perry took $12,000. He's sleeping right. in a car and right. it's not, he couldn't go get him an apartment, right? He, he made a decision and it's absolutely more difficult when you have children uh, to make those decisions but I've had like I remember not even that long ago I was in a one-bedroom apartment my bed my bed was in the living room I had put my children in the bedroom it was a one-bedroom one-bathroom apartment because I needed to scale back I was looking at everything I was looking at the expenses the income I have my goals set up there and I'm like how am I gonna make this happen well trying to scale down right vision board I do have a vision board. I actually host a vision board party every every year in December. This year will be my fifth year hosting a vision board party okay. um, out here in Denver. But yeah, I mean, those types of conversations that people are not having, right? And so, like, I, you know, I had invited some people over and they walked in and they were kind of like, oh, what's going on? Because when you walked into what would be the living room, uh, I had me a little love seat, a little chair, and... Um, and my, my, my television was there. This when I still had cable. But then next to my my chair where where effectively where the dining room would have been was my bed right. was there and I, like my friends were like 
oh, and I'm like, judge me if you want to judge me, but guess right. who's not going to be in the same position? Give me a year, right? right. And so it's just important, I think, for us to start to think outside of the box and, and not be so worried. Like, I literally was unbothered. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I have goals. I have places and things that I was trying to do and, and things right. that I Yeah, purpose. Right. And so that's what it was. Um, my phone died, but before it did, I saw someone ask my podcast, which is Boss Up with BBI. Boss up with BBI. Now, how can they listen to your podcast? Where is it? Where um, platforms. The easiest place right now would be to go to BBI Professional. My website is being redone, but all the links right now are currently still up. So if you go to uh, there, or you can subscribe on my YouTube channel, BBI Professional. BBI Professional on YouTube. Uh, can they, if they go to uh, your website, bbiprofessional.com, can they get to the podcast through your website also? Yes. Okay, bbiprofessional.com. So we'll post this here. Okay. If you and, Google and, Boss Up with BBI as well, it comes up. It's on Anchor. I have Okay. On. Okay. And uh, very quickly here, uh, well, number one, my studio is in my one-bedroom apartment. Okay. <laughs> so uh, through this one-bedroom apartment, I reached the world when I was guest hosting Roland Martin's national radio show. I was broadcasting from this same place. When I was doing my national radio show, nationally syndicated radio show, the Michael M. Hotep show, I was broadcasting right from here, okay? And through this one-bedroom apartment, I reached the world. Um, if people check out the article, quick correction here. Um, median household income for African Americans is uh, $17,000. Uh, it, it was 11000 a few years ago, uh, but as of 2016, 171000 median household income for white people, uh, white families, and the median is uh, 17000 for African-American families. Read the article from the Washington Post, a new explanation for the stubborn persistence of the racial wealth gap. A new explanation for the stubborn persistence of the racial wealth gap. And this is from March 14th, 2019, written by Christopher Ingram. And then also the book you mentioned, Jai's Profit First. That is written by uh, Mike uh, Mikulowicz, uh, M-I-C-H-A-L-O-W-I-C-Z. Okay, Mikulowicz, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Profit first, transform your business from a cash-eating monster to a money-making machine. All right, so uh, people visit blackbosssummit.com, uh, get more information, get your tickets today. Saturday, September 7th, 2019 in Denver, it wasn't, is it Denver, Colorado? Uh, or No, I'm sorry, um, Lone Tree, Colorado. Lone Tree. Yeah, so it's in Metro Denver, yes. Metro Essex, Denver. South Denver. Okay, excellent, excellent. Uh, any last words you want to leave everybody with, uh, Jice? I don't. I, you know what? Just um, my, my encouragement for everybody is to go out there and continue to become the best version of you. Be become the best version of you. All right. All right. Well, look, everybody. Hey, this has been uh, Jice Johnson, uh, Michael M. Hotep, and uh, we have been having a fantastic conversation here. And uh, be sure to uh, share this broadcast with uh, your friends. Follow us on our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. You'll find this on our YouTube channel uh, as well. Okay. All right, Josh, you uh, Jice, take care. You have a good day. Okay. Good seeing you again as well. All right. I like to see your smile, too. I like it when you smile. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care. Okay. You too. All right. Peace. All right, everybody, so uh, stand by, and uh, okay. All right, so, hey, um, be sure to follow us on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. Turn on the notifications so you know when we go live. Follow us on our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P on YouTube. Turn on the notifications so you know when we go live there as well, and we upload new uh, videos. Um, 
visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, if you'd like this type of information, uh, you can order Hidden Colors 5, Hidden Colors 5, uh, The Art of Black Warfare. We have that available at our website right now, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. For each copy of Hidden Colors 5 you purchase, you'll get three digital download uh, presentations of mine, including six principles of political self-defense, how laws and policies impact the economic conditions of African Americans. All of my DVD lectures are at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay, we have them in bundle packs as well. Our latest bundle is the Black Migration 1619 to 2019 bundle. Okay, it includes six of my latest presentations that I've done this year. And Black Migrations is this year's theme for African-American History Month as well. And there's an annual theme each year for Black History Month or African-American History Month. And we know the governing body of Black History Month or African-American History Month is the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, which was the organization that Dr. Carter G. Woodson Dr. Carter G. Woodson co-founded September 9th, 1915 in Chicago, all right? And it started out as the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Now it's the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. The annual theme is not just to be celebrated during February, but to be celebrated all year long. And it gives purpose to the celebration of African-American History Month. It gives you uh, direction. It gives you uh, historical events to reflect upon and to move forward with as well. This year's theme is Black Migrations, okay? And Black Migrations, they're looking at not just the transatlantic slave trade, which was a forced migration of African people, but they're specifically looking at, specifically looking at the migrations of African people and African Americans in the 20th century, the 1900s, uh, looking at the great migration of 1915 to 1970, where you have 6 million African Americans migrating from the South up North and out West. And the great migration is totally going to change the country. And it's going to lead to rebellions taking place like the watch rebellion in 67 detroit rebellion in 67 is going to lead to race riots taking place like the red summer of 1919 that we are commemorating the 100th year anniversary of the red summer right now and you had uh over 25 major race riots in this country the year after world war one ends okay so that's so uh, we had the black migrations uh 1619 to 2019 uh six dvd bundle pack at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We'll post a link here uh, as well, okay? So uh, check, out the, uh, check out the videos that I do here on Facebook and YouTube. I just did one dealing with um, fried chicken, soul food, and the black church, uh, why um, black people who uh, go to church more often, have higher rates of obesity and diabetes. And that's looking at a, 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 a study from Duke University that just came out, okay? And uh, check that out as well. Check out our other videos. And then we have our broadcast in audio podcast format as well. So when you go to uh, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, click on um, listen to podcast right on the homepage. It takes you to our blog talk radio page and we have almost a thousand uh, close to a thousand audio podcasts there of our broadcast. This broadcast here will be available in audio podcast format as well. And um, we're on eight different podcast platforms. We're on iTunes, CastBox, Acast, TuneIn, FM Player, Stitcher and some other uh, platforms also. OK, so wherever you get your podcast from, search for the African History Network show. 
the African History Network show. All right. Uh, be sure to listen to the African History Network Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. Now they're playing Major League Baseball for the next few weeks. So that preempts my show. Uh, I may be on, may not. What we try to do is uh, Sundays, 9 p.m. If I'm not there, we'll try to broadcast uh, here. Okay, and uh, we put all those uh, broadcasts in podcast, audio podcast format as well. And we broadcast on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, and uh, upload those to our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, as well. All right. Uh, you can subscribe to our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K E M E T. Text the word Kemet, K E M E T, to 22828. Okay, text the word Kemet, K E M E T, to 22828. Um, to sign up for our email newsletter. And those in Oakland, California, I will be in Oakland, California on October the 12th, the weekend of October the 12th, Columbus Day, with the Black Agenda Tour with Jice Johnson, Michi X, um, and others as well. So visit uh, theblackagendaontour.com, theblackagendaontour.com for more information. All right, and we'll have this information also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. If you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network. Uh, you can donate at paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, or at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. So that helps us to keep doing the research, finance the Sunday night show, cover travel expenses when I have to travel as well, pay the bills, et cetera, stay on the air, all right? And then uh, lastly, um, I teach an online course called Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. And this is a um, eight-week, 16-hour online course that I teach, dealing with thousands of years of history. And we uh, look at this history chronologically and we look at what led to the transatlantic slave trade happening. So a lot of people are commemorating 400 years, August 20th, 1619. We just saw the commemoration uh, take place. Uh, many of you all saw the uh, numerous interviews I did with Dr. Leonard Jeffries and Professor James Small, Professor Kaba Kamene, all three from the Hidden Colors, Hidden Colors Five, as well as... Um, Dr. David M. Hotep, who wrote the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. And a lot of people are uh, reading the articles from the uh, 1619 Project with uh, the New York Times, or they're reading articles from the Washington Post, et cetera, right? But when we look at that history, they're not looking at that history chronologically, and they're not looking at the uh, 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors, who take the teachings from ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, into Europe. And because of these conflicts with Europeans, this is going to lead to the transatlantic slave trade happening. So when we look at this history, we have to look at this history chronologically. And we have to understand that the um, transatlantic slave trade did not happen in a vacuum. Okay, historical events don't happen in a vacuum. They are the culmination of a sequence of historical events that lead to a larger event taking place, right? So when we, when we look at our history, we can't start, even when we look at the transatlantic slave trade, we can't start studying in 1619, August 20, 1619, with that uh, English, war, uh, English pirate ship, the White Lion, 
uh, coming into Port Com Point Comfort in Virginia and trading 29 Africans for uh, water and supplies and food. Okay, we can't start studying the history in the 1440s when the Portuguese get involved in the transatlantic slave trade because the Portuguese were the first ones involved in the transatlantic slave trade, and um, they're they're going to dominate for the first 200 years. Okay, we have to understand thousands of years of history that lead up to the transatlantic slave trade happening. And we also have to understand that African people are the original people of North, Central, and South America. African people are the original people of North, Central, and South America. So this is one of the books that we uh, that I reference in the online course. The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence by Dr. David M. Hotel. The First Americans uh, Were Africans Documented Evidence by Dr. David M. Hotel. Okay. And this deals with the African presence in the Americas, but especially in the land we call the United States of America, going back at least 51,700 years ago. And these were the Khoisan. The Khoisan have the oldest DNA on the planet. They come from Southern Africa. They're the ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa. And they go all around the world, and they were here in this land as well. Okay, this is thousands of years before the people who we call Native Americans come into existence. So this being the year of return, and we see many African Americans are reconnecting to Africa. They're traveling to Ghana, traveling to West African countries. We saw uh, recently that um, Samuel L. Jackson went to Gabon and reconnected to his ancestry because he did his DNA testing and it takes him back to uh, Gabon. Uh, we we, we, we uh, saw in um, December around the holiday, around the Christmas, New Year's Eve holiday, uh, December 2018 going into January 2019, 93 African-American celebrities were hosted in Ghana by um, African-American actor uh, Boris Kojo okay, who is, his uh, father is from Ghana, Boris Kojo and the Ghanaian government. And this is, and they were celebrating the, um, the uh, full circle festival and the year of return. So as we see African people reconnecting to uh, African culture and African history, right? We also have to put this in historical context when we deal with the transatlantic slave trade and understand uh, the uh, historical events and understand the chronology of history that leads up to the transatlantic slave trade happening. And when we understand the transatlantic slave trade as a result of the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors, we see that the transatlantic slave trade really is Europeans getting revenge on the African Moors for what happens in Europe. This is where all this stuff gets twisted around, Okay. So these are things that we deal with uh, in, the in, in the online course. And uh, we deal with the uh, African Moors going in from Morocco into what today is Spain and Portugal. Back then it was the Iberian Peninsula in 711 AD. Uh, they're fighting against the Vandals and the Visigoths, and uh, they're going to defeat them. But the, uh, the, the Moors go all throughout Europe, and they intermix with the European population and, and to, to varying, varying extents. Uh, uh, they uh, changed the complexion of Europeans as well. Spain and Portugal probably get it the most because they're right above Morocco. But they go into France, they go into Sicily, Crete, they go on into uh, uh, Italy, uh, they go into uh, Holland, they're in England, Austria, Germany, they go all throughout Europe. And we see before Europeans are worshiping the white um, Mary and Jesus, they're worshiping the black Madonna and child. And there's still statues of the black Madonna and child all throughout Europe. People who have been to Italy, if you've been to Italy or you've been to Spain, you've probably seen 
uh, either paintings of the black Madonna and child or you've seen statues of the black Madonna and child. OK, so there is still an African presence all throughout Europe. But a lot of us don't know the connection where that comes from and how that is connected to the transatlantic slave trade. And also understanding that the Moors are taking the teachings from ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt into Europe. And Europe was the dark continent. They're taking the light from ancient Kemet, the Nile Valley region of Africa. And they're taking that light into Europe and bringing Europe out of the dark ages. And all of this was to our detriment. Okay. All this was to our detriment because everything we taught, uh, taught uh, the Europeans came back to kick us in the behind. So these are some of the things that we deal with in the online course. All right. So we do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, everything. All right. So the course is regularly $130. It's on sale $80 right now. Uh, there's about 36 hours of bonus content. As soon as you re register, you can watch classes one through three. We do the classes live on Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. They're about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, and all the sessions are recorded. So you can go back and watch them over and over again. Okay. All the sessions are recorded. So we'll post the link here again for you. Uh, you can register. So as soon as you register, you can start watching. You can use this for your children as well. I would say this is probably PG-13. I don't do a lot of cursing. It's not vulgar. But since we're talking about, you know, some atrocities inflicted upon African people, we have to talk about sexual assault some. We have to talk about some of the brutality inflicted upon African people. But it's not... Um, it's not, I don't purposely try to make it graphic. I don't purposely try to make it horrific. So I, I would say it's probably PG-13. Um, I don't, people know me, I don't do a bunch of cursing and things like this. Uh, but you can use it for your family as well. You can use it for your children if you do homeschooling or you want to supplement what the, your children are not getting in the traditional school as well. Okay, so uh, you can regist register for that as well. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, 2019 edition, the year of return. All right. So, hey, everybody, look, I have to get out of here. Uh, remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now, it's correct for own behavior. You see me wearing my Colin Kaepernick shirt. I'll be doing another broadcast dealing with Jay-Z and Colin Kaepernick and uh, the, the news coming out that Jay-Z is doing a deal, uh, well, his, he has his NFL deal, but he's doing a deal dealing with um, the proceeds from uh, the proceeds of his deal going to finance social justice programs, okay, which is what they're telling us. Uh, first, at first, the rumor was he was going to be part owner of a team, but that had to be, but people may not understand it, uh, a deal to be part owner of a team has to be um, that has to be voted on by other team owners. Okay. So if they just come in out saying, Oh, he's going to be part owner of a team or really, when, when did the owners take a vote on that? <laughs> when did the, when did the other team owners, many of them Donald Trump supporters, when did they take a vote on that? All right. But uh, let's see, what is this? Uh, in a, uh, let's see. The, so the latest news is Jay-Z and NFL launch Inspire Change Apparel that will fund social justice programs. Meek Mill joins kickoff concert. So I'm going to do a whole separate presentation, breaking this stuff down 
and how ridiculous this is. And Eric Reed, um, who was the second NFL player to get involved in Colin Kaepernick's protests and the second player to take a knee. Eric Reed said, said it correctly. He said, uh, when did Jay-Z take a knee? I know Jay-Z been, has been involved in social justice programs. I'm not saying that. But when Jay-Z held his press conference with uh, Roger Goodell, who's the uh, uh, league commissioner, NFL commissioner, and Jay-Z said, this is the next step. Ba- basically, he was saying, this is the next step in Colin Kaepernick's protest and we're taking this to the next level, things like this. Well, um, you're not in a position to take his protest to the next level. That comes from that comes from Kaepernick, because you didn't create this. And and Eric Reed was interviewed about this, and Eric Reed said, you know, when did Jay Z take a knee? I know Eric, I know Jay Z's been involved in social justice programs, but this whole thing, and I'm gonna do a separate broadcast dealing with this. This whole move by the NFL to bring Jay-Z in or to really co-op Jay-Z is designed to go around Colin Kaepernick because when you look at the last Super Bowl, and I haven't watched the NFL game in three years, I'm not going to watch an NFL game, including the Sucker Bowl, until Kaepernick gets hired, okay? So some people say, well, he got his settlement. Well, he deserved his settlement, but he's still being whiteballed by the league because of his protest, which is sending a signal to the other players to keep your mouth shut, boy, and do what we tell you to do, all right? So if you want to participate in your own dehumanization like that, and if watching the Sucker Bowl or uh, any NFL game is so important that you want to participate in your own dehumanization, well, you know, that's on you. Okay, my principles are not my principles are not situational. So I haven't watched the NFL game in three years, including the Sucker Bowl. But um, what this is designed to do. So when we look at and we go analyze the halftime show for the last Super Bowl, Maroon Maroon Five uh, uh, played the Super Bowl, the halftime show. They got a lot of criticism for being involved in that. Um, Travis. Um, um, uh, he, he, he did it as well. He played as well, but people were complaining about how, um, Travis Scott, people were complaining about how poor or the lack of, uh, the poor quality of the Super Bowl halftime show. Well, see, there were a lot of key, uh, artists who said, we're not going to play the halftime show because of Colin Kaepernick. Well, now with the NFL co-opting Jay-Z. Now, Jay-Z is going to produce, quote unquote, music for the NFL and theme songs for the NFL. He's gonna bring in artists. So it's telling the artists who took a stand with Kaepernick and said, we're not gonna play at the Super Bowl. It's telling them it's all right to come in now without actually verbally saying it's all right to come in now. That's what this is about because the NFL has been losing revenue. The NFL has been losing viewership partly because of Kaepernick's protest. It's not 100% because of the protest, partly because of the protest, but also backlash around the protest. Backlash from some people who say, we don't want to see those black NFL players taking a knee. 
okay, we want them to stand for the national anthem, even though when most of these people watch the football game in their living rooms, they're not standing for the national anthem. When they're at sports bars and the, and the national anthem comes on, they're not standing for the national anthem then. But they want the black NFL players to stand for the national anthem, okay? So that's what, that's what this is all about. They're, they're, they're going around Kaepernick to co-op Jay-Z, who was a, who was a hip-hop mogul, one of the biggest names in hip-hop music entertainment is a hip-hop mogul to bring him in because they know if they co-op Jay-Z and bring him in, then other artists will come in as well, okay? So now we see Meek Mill is going to uh, do a kickoff concert dealing with surrounding this Inspire Change things. Now, they haven't said how much of the proceeds are going to be donated, what percentage. They haven't said which social justice programs are going to get the money. Are these going to be social justice programs that, that black people control or white people control? They haven't, all these details haven't come up yet, but I'll do a separate broadcast dealing with that. All right. Okay. So uh, let's see who we have here. Jolyn, um, Gigi said, oh, they're using the backdoor maneuver. Yeah, that's what this is about. This is a, this is a backdoor maneuver. Okay, this is a backdoor maneuver. Kaepernick still cannot, he's, Kaepernick is working out five days a week. He just released a video because see, August, uh, August 26th was the, August 26, 2019 was the three year anniversary of Kaepernick's protest being recognized. That was the um, third preseason game at Levi Stadium, San Francisco 49ers versus the Green Bay Packers. That was Friday, August 26th. 2016. So August 26, 2019 was the three-year anniversary of his protest being recognized because he protested the first two games of the NFL preseason, but nobody recognized, realized he was sitting on the bench during the uh, Star Spangled Banner. Okay, so then with this third preseason game, uh, after the game, a a uh, sports reporter, it may have been Steve Weiss, a sports reporter asked the question, why were you sitting on the bench? So then Kaepernick starts talking about this, right? The first article, probably the first article written about this was Steve Weiss for NFL.com. So I've been following this protest since the very first article was written by Steve Weiss, W-I-W-Y-C-H-E for NFL.com. And I've read about 100 articles since then. I've done lectures on Colin Kaepernick's protest. All right, so... When I, so when I wear this shirt, you know, this is not a fashion statement. This is a political statement. And when you look at the, when you look at the shirt, it also has, see, people just see the top, right? But the shirt has the names of African-Americans who've been shot and killed by police unjustly as well. Now, what's interesting is when you look at, when you study the statistics, every year more white people are killed by police than African-Americans. If you go watch, uh, when I was in, when the last interview I did with Michi X and uh, Jade Arendelle, we talked about this. Go to Washington Post and look and search for Fatal Force. Fatal Force is a database from the Washington Post that tracks police killings. And it breaks it, uh, um, it, it breaks it down by race, uh, you know, uh, people who were killed by police. It breaks it down by race. It breaks it down by whether the people were armed with a knife, gun, unarmed, what have you. Every year, there are more white people killed by police than African-Americans, okay? 
and I'll pull up Fatal Force because I, I I researched this. Um, most people don't know this, however. Okay, most people don't know this. So, and African Americans are disproportionately killed by police. African Americans are disproportionately killed by police, which means a higher percentage than our population are killed by police. All right. Um, so we were 14% of the population. So, so far this year, there've been 602 people who've been shot and killed by police. Okay. Uh, this was last updated August 29th, um, 2019. All right. So most people don't know that there are more white people killed each year by police than African-Americans, right? How many shirts have you seen with the names of white people on it killed by police? We've seen numerous shirts with the names of African-Americans killed by police. How many, how many T-shirts do you see with the names of white people killed by police? Or a better question would be, why don't we see T-shirts with the names of white people killed by police? Every year when you research this, and this database goes back to 2015. They've been, they've been collecting this database at the Washington Post since 2015. When you research this year after year after year after year, there are more white people killed by police than African-Americans. As long as unjust police killings are looked at as a black thing, it's not going to change. It's just like the opioid, it's just like opioid crisis. If the opioid crisis only affected African-Americans, you would not see the attention given to the opioid crisis. You would not see the need to change. You would not see the lawsuits, things like this, as long if it only affected African-Americans. Because the opioid crisis is largely affecting white people, and also um, African-Americans are affected by the opioid crisis, but the drugs that we're getting are largely not prescription drugs. We're, we're getting drugs on the street because the heavy painkillers were historically not prescribed for African Americans because it was um, um, one, you had doctors operating based upon stereotypes that African Americans had higher uh, thresholds of pain. Uh, on uh, AM Joy, Joanne Reed show, uh, 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 Saturday, August 31st, 2019, they did a segment talking about the opioid, opioid crisis. And there was an article that she referenced, a 2016 article for, uh, from the uh, uh, Washington Post that broke this down. But I've seen other articles dealing with this. Blackdoctor.org has articles. I've seen studies. I've seen studies done with medical students who operate based upon this myth that African-Americans have a higher threshold for pain, that uh, um, it, so they were less likely to prescribe um, he heavier dosages of painkillers for African-Americans. It also goes back to um, stereotypes of African-Americans with why uh, cocaine was made illegal. Because cocaine used to be legal in this country. But the fear was um, what happens when these um, what happens when these men, when these black men get high on cocaine? Are they going to rape white women? 
All right. There was a there was a, a huge article from the New York Times from February 8th, 1914, exactly one year before the movie The Birth of a Nation comes out. Name of this article was Negro Cocaine Fiends Have Turned to Sniffing um, Now uh, uh, Because of Prohibition, something like that. It was a huge article from the New York Times. And it talked about how African-American men were starting to snort cocaine now that they couldn't get alcohol because of prohibition and the fears that uh, many white people had about what would these black men do when they're high on cocaine? Do police officers now have to carry a 45 caliber handgun because a 38 is not powerful enough to kill a Negro high on cocaine? Okay, New York Times, the, 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 the newspaper of record, February 8th, 1914, Google that. Okay, and then the nation.com, a hundred years later in uh, 2014, the nation had an article where they looked at like the legacy of this mentality because this is why the drugs were made illegal. It wasn't, it wasn't because of the drugs that the drugs were made illegal. Cocaine was legal in this country. Marijuana was legal in this country. It was, it was, it was about who was starting to use them. As long as white people were using these drugs, as long as white people were using opium, cocaine, uh, cannabis, hemp, marijuana, it wasn't a problem. When non-white people started using these, now it became a problem, all right? But if you look at this article from uh, Washington Post, uh, this is from 2016. Joy, Joy Ann Reed talked about this on AM Joy um, Saturday, August 31st, 2019 on MSNBC. So go to msnbc.com and uh, click on AM Joy when they show the different shows and look at the segment she did dealing with the opioid crisis. The disturbing reason some African-American patients may be undertreated for pain. The disturbing reason some African-American patients may be undertreated for pain. Okay. This is from April 4th, 2016. Now, it's interesting that this article came out April 4th, 2016, because April 4th is the anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., April 4th, 1968. But this article says African-Americans are routinely undertreated for their pain compared with whites. According to research, a study released Monday shed some disturbing light on why that might be the case. Researchers at the University of Virginia quizzed white medical students and residents to see how many believed inaccurate and at times fantastical differences about the two races. For example, that blacks have less sensitive nerve endings than whites, or that black people's blood coagulates more quickly. They found that fully half, they found that fully half or 50% thought at least one of the false statements presented was possibly, probably, or definitely true. Okay, now they're quizzing white medical students who are going to be treating African-Americans at some point in their career. Moreover, those who held false beliefs often rated black patients pain as lower than that of white patients and made less appropriate recommendations about how they should be treated. Let me repeat this. Moreover, those who held false beliefs often rated African-American patients pain as lower than that of white patients and made less appropriate recommendations about how they should be treated. Now, the study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it could help illuminate one of the most vexing problems in pain treatment today. 
that whites are more likely than African-Americans to be prescribed strong pain medications for equivalent ailments. A, 2000, a year 2000 study out of Emory University, okay? A year 2000 study out of Emory, Emory University found that at a hospital emergency department in Atlanta, Georgia, 74% of white patients with bone fractures received painkillers compared with 50% of African-American patients, okay? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, former Confederate state, or what? Georgia, former Confederate state. A year 2000 study out of Emory University found that at a hospital emergency department in Atlanta, Georgia, 74% or almost three quarters of white patients with bone fractures received painkillers compared with only 50% of African-American patients. Similarly, a paper in uh, 2015 found that African-American children with appendicitis were less likely to receive pain medication than their white counterparts. So I remember when this study dealing with appendicitis came out, because AtlantaBlackStar.com had an article about this, and BlackDoctor.org as well had articles about this. All right? In 2015, uh, a paper found that, or a study found that black children with appendicitis were less likely to receive pain medication than their white counterparts. And a 2007 study found that physicians were more likely to underestimate the pain of African-American patients compared with other patients. Now, researchers who study health disparities have said that unconscious stereotypes, okay, or we can say racial bias, unconscious stereotypes or implicit bias, unconscious stereotypes about African-Americans likely contribute to this problem as well as physicians' difficulty empathizing with patients whose experiences differ from, differ from theirs. But see, here's the thing. If you have been bombarded with negative stereotypical images of African-Americans, and if you subconsciously think that African-Americans are not human, then you're not going to empathize with them. Researchers who study health disparities have said that unconscious stereotypes about African-Americans likely contribute to this problem, as well as physicians' difficulty empathizing with patients whose experiences differ from theirs. So racism, when we understand what racism is, racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. Racism occurs when one race of people control the majority of the wealth, power, resources, benefits, privileges, land, access to education, health care, access to opportunity, jobs, etc. And they use this to marginalize, subordinate, and do harm to another race of people. So you don't have to. So this is why, you know, when I watch MSNBC, and I got MSNBC on right now, it's just muted, right? I do research all day, watch MSNBC six to 10 hours a day. When they talk about articles, Washington Post, New York Times, USA Today, Politico, I write down the names of those articles and I go read them. If I haven't already read them, because I read Washington Post and New York Times every day, I have digital subscriptions to the Washington Post and New York Times. When I see discussions taking place talking about racism, and there's more and more talk about white supremacy now because of Donald Trump, right? In none of these discussions do they ever define from a historical perspective what racism is. So people who come away from the discussion confused about racism. is So everybody uses the term racist or racism, but they never define what the hell racism is. 
which is problematic. You can't fight what you don't define. You can't fight what you don't understand. So hating, so racial hatred, hating someone because of their ethnicity or their race, what have you, that's bigotry. Calling people racial epithets, things like that, that's bigotry. That's not racism. Racism is a power structure. Racism comes out of the ideology of white supremacy. White supremacy is the ideology that European culture, European standards of beauty, European ideology is superior. But they all, but also that Europeans have the right to subordinate and subjugate other people. This is an ideology of white supremacy, okay? That they have the authority to go around the world and conquer other people and take people's lands, the land through manifest destiny. This is an ideology of white supremacy. Racism is a power structure that comes out of the comes out of the ideology of white supremacy. And racism reinforces the ideology that Europeans are superior. Racism is a system. When we understand racism from a historical perspective, okay, you read Black Labor, White Wealth with Dr. Claude Anderson, Powernomics, you read, you study Dr. Um, Dr. Francis Cress Wilson, the ISIS paper, uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy, post-traumatic slave syndrome, okay? And th this is one of the things I deal with in the online course, and I've written articles dealing with this as well. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race, okay? Racism occurs when one race of people control the majority of the wealth, power, resources, benefits, privileges, land, access to opportunity, access to education, healthcare, media, jobs, etc., And they use this to marginalize, subordinate, and do harm to another race of people. That don't have nothing to do with calling people the N-word, not liking people, hating people. And it, that has nothing to do with that. That deals with understanding laws, policies, how this maldistributed wealth, power, and resources into the hands of the dominant white society. We, and when we understand two years of slavery, decades of Jim Crow segregation, all that was about was redistributing, maldistributing the wealth, power, and resources and profiting off of the labor of African people to enrich yourselves. That's what this dealt with. There were at least 262 skills, trades, and crafts that African people had in this country from 1619 to 1865 at least 216 skills, trades, and crafts. We were locked out of massive land giveaways like the Homestead Act of 1862, the Southern Homestead Act of 1866. Largely locked out of the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 and redistributed 138 million acres of land, okay? The, the, the majority of that land, two-thirds of that land that was redistributed went to white people and it was supposed to go to Native Americans and black Indians, Okay, so we're dealing with a maldistribution of wealth, power, and resources, but based upon laws. So on the Black Agenda Tour, when I do my presentation, dealing with six principles of political self-defense, how public policies and laws impact the conditions of impact the economic conditions of African Americans, this is what I'm talking about. Because 246 years of slavery was law. That was legal in this country. And even after the uh, about uh, even after the international slave trade was abolished because the bill passed congress march 2nd 1807 went into effect january 1st 1808 europeans continued to bring africans into this country and it was illegal to do that that's based upon article 1 section 9 of the u.s constitution clause 1 of article 1 section 9 of the u.s constitution most of us don't even understand this history so we're out here arguing for reparations 
and don't even understand the history of what we're arguing for and don't understand how to make legal arguments for reparations. Because most of these arguments for reparations are not even legal arguments. All right, so um, I'll do another broadcast dinner with Jay-Z. We'll get deep into this. Let's see who we have here, uh, Matthew. Okay, so let me post this article here. I need to do a separate broadcast also dealing with, because uh, see, I, I do a lecture called uh, dealing with how uh, racism negatively impacts the health of African-Americans. How racism negatively impacts the health of African-Americans. And I, I show you how uh, these policies, these ideologies, et cetera, how they manifest themselves throughout society and also in the healthcare industry, okay? And how this, ne how this negatively impacts us and how things like what, what we talk about implicit bias, how stereotypes, how they influence the way people think about us that then negatively impacts the type of healthcare we get, how it negatively impacts policing of African bodies, African-American bodies. Whereas in the white community, uh, police are there to serve and protect the, the people in the community where, and then oftentimes in our community, not in every instance, but there, there are good police officers. There are approximately 800,000 police officers, about 18,500 police departments. So I'm not talking about all of them, but we see numerous instances. Okay. We see officer Pantaleo. Okay. Who got fired for killing Eric Garner. And now he's suing to get his job back. And we see, that uh, a lot of a lot of the police officers in, in in the city of New York are upset that he got fired. They're more upset that he got fired than they are that Eric Garner was killed. They're more they're more upset that Pantaleo lost his job than they are that Eric Garner lost his life. But see, when you didn't think he was a human being in the first place, Eric Garner. And he said 11 times that he can't breathe and you didn't have enough compassion for him because you didn't think he was human. You didn't have enough compassion for him. Okay. To say, maybe he's telling the truth. Right. So this, so, but this deals with understanding how imagery shapes the way people think about a targeted group of people. And this impacts how they interact with that with with one of those people who represents that group they have been programmed to think negatively of. Okay, so th th this was this is dealing with the power of imagery and the propaganda of the media. This is why this is so extremely important. This is why we have to fight against these negative images of African Americans, whether it's coming from negative corporate control hip hop, whether it's from uh, uh, movies that dehumanize African Americans and show us as criminals and things like this, that form, that causes people to form a consensus. And when they are confronted with someone of that group who have the, they've been fed negative stereotypical images of for so many years, tens of thousands of images, they act accordingly based upon the way they have been programmed. Okay, so check out this article also, The Disturbing Reason some African-American patients may be undertreated for pain. I'm going to do a separate broadcast breaking that stuff down as well because that all ties into history, okay? That all ties into history. And, you know, your thoughts create feelings. Your feelings create actions and behaviors. Your actions and behaviors create, create results, okay? Your thoughts create feelings. Your feelings create actions and behaviors. Your actions and behaviors create results. So, you see, my background is in marketing. I've been studying history for 27 years, but as I said, when I was interview, interviewing Jice Johnson, 
Um, I haven't studied history. Well, that, my background's in business administration. My degree's in business administration with a major in marketing. So in marketing, we study how the mind works. We study how to craft messages, right? We, we, we study uh, uh, advertising. We, we study how to communicate messages to people to elicit a certain behavior. This is all understanding marketing, all right? So, um, all right, so who we have watching? Gary, Andrew, just a few of the people watching. If you like this type of information also, um, you can donate to the African History Network, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, also register for the online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Kemet's one of the original names for Egypt. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We do a thousands of years of history. We get deep into this, uh, this history as well. And a people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems in the past, how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. A people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. So this is why this history is so important. Your history and culture gives you your VIPs, your values, your interests, and your principles. As two of my teachers, Dr. Linda Jeffries and Professor Jane Small teaches, and some of you all saw the interviews I did with them August 20th, 2019, dealing with 400 years. So our history and culture gives us our VIPs, our values, our interests, and our principles. This influences our economic empowerment and our political empowerment. This influences our economics and our politics. So we have to have a synthesis of all three. It's not just economics, because if that foundation is not in place, you can have a $1.3 trillion economy and spend 97% of your dollars with people that don't look like you. So you have economics, but you're using it the wrong way. So your history and culture gives you purpose. It gives you a cultural paradigm that you see reality through. It not just talks, it not just uh, deals with the importance of supporting your own businesses so we can economically empower ourselves, but it also influences the type of businesses that we have. It influences the type of business structure. Are we operating based upon cooperative economics and the concept of the co-ops? And we have a rich history of hundreds of years dealing with co-ops and cooperative economics, which are principles we brought with us from Africa as well. Or are we operating based upon a European concept of business and European capitalism? I think that's going to save the African-American community because it's not. I'm all for economic empowerment and, and, and business ownership. But white business principles are not going to save the African-American community. Okay, so. Hey, look, we have to get out of here. Remember that the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. Right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you next time. Welcome to the Fast Life 28-Day Challenge. Imagine what your health could look like after 28 days of a structured fasting regimen, healthy habits, and three coaches holding you accountable on a daily basis. 
Here's your chance to move from imagination to realization. The Fast Life 28-Day Challenge is here to help you. Visit their website, tfl28.com. Now, this is an online coaching program to help members tap into their body's natural ability to repair itself via fasting. In this 28-Day Challenge, they focus on utilizing fasting, whole foods, and movement to improve metabolic conditions such as obesity, high blood pressure, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, and more. This is a 28-day program. There is also a private Facebook group to give you tips and encouragement. Also, they have a new cohort starting up very soon. So visit their website, tfl28.com, for more information for the Fast Life 28-Day Challenge. Hey, down here. It's us, your feet. We want to tell you something you already know. It's time to buy yourself some new shoes. Have you heard of the Knickknackery Co? It's the hottest new place to buy women's shoes online, and they have some unique soles for your soul. The Knickknackery Co's signature soles are handcrafted in small custom batches by professional artisans. A careful eye to detail delivers styles that are both timeless and on trend. And they're constructed to last. The best part? They're as comfortable for us as they are stylish for you. For sophisticated women who love quality and uniqueness, you can't beat the Knickknackery Co. Visit us online at www.shopknickknacks.com. Follow us on all social media. There are no shoes we'd rather kick it with because they are very sophisticated for the soul. Two thousand nineteen is here, and there's no better time to start working on your financial goals. My name is Martisha Patterson, and I am a certified financial planner with over nineteen years in the wealth management industry. I am helping people just like you focus on and achieve their goals. If you need help with budgeting, saving for emergencies or retirement, if you want to start investing but don't know where to start, I am here to help. No need to feel alone or frustrated. No one's situation is the same, which is why you need a certified financial planner to develop a unique plan tailored to your specific needs. Contact me today. My phone number is 646 552-4384 again 646-552-4384 or email me at pattersonplan17 at gmail.com my website is pattersonplan17.com no more excuses now is the time my name is Martisha Patterson and I am here to help Dark Magenta specializes in creating home spa products based on nature's healing and soothing properties. Dark Magenta carries essential oil and cannabidiol infused bath bombs, shower steamers, sugar scrubs, and soaps. They include oils and herbs such as lavender, rosemary, eucalyptus, sage, cedarwood, oatmeal, shea butter, cannabidiol, and more. They also carry oil diffusers and 100% pure essential oils. Visit their website today at darkmagentas.com. That's M-A-G-E-N-T-A-S, darkmagentas.com, and indulge in these treats for the body and the mind. Are you interested in how Wall Street works? It is interesting how certain opportunities are not presented to our community, especially when it involves billions of dollars that are being exchanged every day through the stock market. Why should you be left out and not get a piece of the action? 
TheProfitRoom.com is a stock market trading and equation company that has mentorship programs that are designed for beginners. They teach individuals how to create generational wealth through trading and investing in the financial markets. They focus on education such as stock market, options, futures, and the foreign exchange markets. Their specialty is day trading and offering one-on-one -on -one mentorship. Their priority deals with capital preservation and risk management. Visit their website, theprofitroom.com forward slash wealth building. Theprofitroom.com forward slash wealth building for more information and sign up for their online classes that they offer also.